Welcome to the Bethel Free Baptist Church Weekly Sermons. This is the morning session of Sunday the 12th of July 2009, entitled Evangelising to Catholics, and the Bible reading is taken from 1 Chronicles chapter 11, verses 20, 22 and 23. Here's Brother Bill Jackson. Well, good morning everybody. Lord willing, tonight I'll be speaking on Humpty Dumpty the 16th and uh, bring out some interesting things about the Roman Catholic Church. Tonight, or this morning, we're going to start with First Chronicles chapter 11 and verse 20. And Abishai, the brother of Joab, he was chief of the three, for lifting up his spear against 300, he slew them and had a name, name among the three. Then verse 22 but Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, the son of a valiant man of Kaziel, who had done many acts, he slew two lion-like men of Joab. Also he went down and slew a lion in a pit in a snowy day, and he slew an Egyptian, a man of great stature, but in the Egyptian's hand was a spear like a weaver's beam. And he went down to to him with a staff, and plucked the spear out of the Egyptian's hand, and slew him with his own spear. Now we're going to have a little contrast here between Abishai and Benaiah. First, we're going to look at the at the court of man, and see what man has to say about these two: Abishai and Benaiah. Well. First of all, when you compare their victories, thank you. When you compare their victories, there's no competition. I mean, Abishai slew 300 men. 300, can you visualize that? Now just try to, try to picture yourself being, standing here and 300 men, that's a lot of men, are coming at you, and yet you're able to wipe them all out. I mean, that's going to make the headlines in the Jerusalem Post. Abishai, the great victor over 300 men. And man is going to look at Abishai as being the greatest thing since bread and butter, the greatest thing in the world, a powerful, powerful Abishai. Benaiah, he slew two mighty men of Moab. He slew a lion in the pit of, on a snowy day. And he slew an Egyptian. Three men. Turn back to page 58 in the newspaper and you see a little headline Benaiah slew three men. And in the courts of man, there's not much to really look forward to as far as Benaiah is concerned. He's not going to make the headlines. Now we're going to look at the two of them in a different way as God would look at them. And we're going to find out that God... For all the great things that Abishai did, 
never again mentions him in Scripture. So as far as God is concerned, Abishai is not really that great. He really do that much. Oh, God, he killed 300 men. Yes, but God says there's more that I'm interested in than fame and success and power. I'm interested in the heart of man. And we're going to look through typology at the heart of Aniah and see what manner of man this really was. Now it tells us, verse 22, Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, the son of a valiant man of Kabzeel. Now we'll stop there a second. What difference does that make? Kabzeel is only mentioned two, two other times in the Bible, one in the parallel passage in Samuel and one in Joshua chapter 15, where it tells us that Kabzeel is in the tribe of Judah. Now, we're starting to uncover something because we realize that out of Jacob's 12 sons, only one was granted the blessing of being in the Messianic line, and that was the tribe of Judah. And so Judah is a tribe from where greatness, God's greatness comes. Now, normally... In a Jewish family, the blessing and the birthright will all go to the oldest person. However, many times God circumvented this law and picked his own person for birthright and blessing. You remember that Abraham did not give either of these to his firstborn son, who was Ishmael. His secondborn son, Isaac, received the blessing and received the birthright. Isaac's two sons, Jacob and Esau, Esau was the firstborn. Esau did not receive the blessing because he sold it, or the birthright, because he sold it to um, Jacob and did not receive the blessing, even though it seemed to be a kind of a crooked way that they worked it out. God was in back of it, and even if Rachel had not done this subterfuge, God still would have anointed Jacob as the blessing bearer going toward the Messiah. And we see in the life of Jacob, 12 sons. Number one, Reuben. But Reuben was unstable as water. Thou shalt not excel. Simeon, second born. Levi, thirdborn, they had gone into the town of Shechem and killed all the first one men in the town of Shechem, or rather all the men in the town of Shechem, and Israel took over the land. So he was ruled out. The fourth, Judah, he was chosen for the blessing. It wasn't until the 11th, Joseph, who got the birthright. And it's quite interesting because the birthright had to do with material things. And Joseph was materially blessed in his whole life, even in adverse circumstances. Whenever it seemed the enemies put Joseph down, God, in his wonderful providence, would bring Joseph up and make him the victor. So we see that the first thing that Benaiah did was to kill 
to a lion-like men of Moab. Well, what about Moab? Well, God said in Numbers 21, 29, Woe to thee, Moab! A few months after I was saved, the young people and I decided we'd go to a midnight movie in the town. And we went, and by the time we finished, the buses had all stopped running, so we had to walk back to base. And so we were all pretty tired <coughs> the next morning in church. Brother Andy Anderson, our pastor, <coughs> was not much concerned about niceties. He said from the pulpit, Woe unto those who go to midnight shows. Woe unto them, I say. And that was the first and last time I've received a preacher's woe. But I don't want to receive another one again. But especially... I don't want to have God's woe. When you see God woeing a person, that person is in pretty bad shape. And God, of course, had said that Moab was his adversary. Beniah slew two lion-like men of Moab, God's adversities. And it is a man of God or a woman of God who knows whose God's adversities are, and who does battle with them. Many times we see happening in our country, and in my country, back in America, that really are wicked, and really are sinful, and really show the lack of discernment, and separation, and godliness, and we as Christians must speak out against these evil doings, because God wants us to take a stand against all evil. And Maniah showed an example to every Christian in the world by, in type, killing the adversaries of God. And in doing that, he said, I'm standing for the Lord, <coughs> regardless of how lion-like these men are. Look at the pro-life people. Talk about lion-like. I mean, you cross them and you're going to go to jail. You cross them and you got problems. They're lying like men. You look at the homosexual lobby and you see lying like people. You see people who don't stop with just saying things. They'll do things. We've had several men of God, uh, preachers and laymen who have stood in the streets in, in America and downgraded the gay problem, and because of their words, they have been physically beaten, some very severely. And so to slay two lion-like men of Moab is to take a stand for that which is right. How do you know what's right? Well, God gave you a pastor. Unfortunately, he's a nice fella, but he's not infallible. And so he might just make a mistake. He probably has made one or two uh, in his lifetime. Not bad mistakes, but little mistakes. And so we find the pastor is not really the last resort of who we go to. It's the word of God. To the word and to the testimony, if they say not according to this word, there is no light in them. 
not just a little light in them, there is no light in them. They are estranged from the mercy and love and fellowship of God because of their sin. And we, in not going around sticking a spear through them, that would um, uh, show us that the New Testament Christians are earthly rather than spiritual. Benaiah did his Old Testament things in an earthly manner, but he gave a type of what we would do as Christians in the new covenant with the Lord Jesus Christ and his grace and his provision. And so we see that he slew two lion-like men of Moab. Then he went down and slew a lion in a snowy day. What in the world could that possibly suggest? First of all, think how the lion got there. Do lions normally see pits and jump in them? I mean, you're getting yourself in a bad situation. You jump in a pit, you have to worry about getting out. It was a snowy day. Now, if any of you know about what a fierce snowstorm is like, it's what they call snow blindness. You can't see anyway. You can't even see your hand in front of your face. The snow is so strong. And so, very possibly, the lion, in the snowy day, did not see where he was going, and he slid down into this pit. Benaiah comes along, he sees a lion in a pit. What would you do? I'd run pretty fast, <laughs> just in case he might get out. But Benaiah knew that as the snow was blinding, very difficult to see where you're going, other people would fall into the pit. And so he had a concern for his other people of Israel, lest they slip on the snow, fall into the pit, and be done in by the lion. A man of God, a woman of God, will always be careful for his fellow Christians. He will always, not very offhand, say, how are you today? I'm fine. Great. In fact, you people ask me today, how am I? Well, I'm not very good, as you see. <laughs> But um, I, I like that. I like that hymn the pastor sang because um, sometimes my favorite scriptures are the five words and it came to pass because it is going to pass. And if even not before heaven, we know that one day we'll be breathing celestial air and walking around in spiritual bodies and everything's going to be pretty good. But here he saw that there might be some hazard for the people of God. And so he knew that he was able to kill the lion with God's power. And so he jumped down into the pit and did battle with the lion and slew him. And we want to really be very concerned with the possible difficulties, sicknesses, heartaches, problems that our fellow Christians go through. It's so easy to be satisfied with their saying, I feel fine, when maybe if you dealt a little deeper, you'd find a real need for prayer. 
you'd find a real, near, a real need for a, a hug. You see a real need for someone to be ministered to. And you could go down into that pit and kill that lion for them. Because if they hit it, they're going to be weak. They're going to be uh, in difficulty. They're going to have a real problem with that lion. Your concern of the children of God goes far beyond any how you feel I'm fine idea. There are people that are hurting, people that have things happen to them that just about wrecks their lives. And were it not for the Lord, and the Lord is sometimes visible in the life of another Christian who comes to you and takes care of that problem you have or helps you or just weeps to you and just prays with you, you should be thinking about what you can do to help your fellow Christian. You should be looking for signs that they're really having problems. And seeing them, you should be willing to give that word of encouragement, that word of blessing, and be to that Christian what he needs in ministration. And then the Bible tells us that he slew an Egyptian with his own spear. That's kind of neat. Um, he has a staff in his hand. <laughs> he sees the Egyptian with a spear in his hand and no little tiny wee spear. This spear, it tells us in the Bible, uh, he slew an Egyptian, a man of great stature, 50 cubits high. That's about seven and a half feet. He wasn't as big as Goliath, but the Bible goes on to tell us that in the Egyptian's hand was a spear like a weaver's beam. And if you remember the story of Goliath, he had a spear like a weaver's beam. Now, exactly how big a weaver's beam is, I have no idea. I've never been a weaver and I've never been a beam, so I have no idea what it was. But it's pretty big because it was the one that nine-foot-plus Goliath wielded and the one that this Egyptian. And so Beniah sees this Egyptian coming toward him, staff like a weaver's beam, seven and a half feet high. He grabs the spear from him. He kills him with his own spear. Now, typically, the Egyptian is a type of the world, which makes the Egyptian a type of an unsafe person. And it makes the physical killing of him typical of the spiritual rebirth in him. And it takes Beniah and turns him into you. You are the Beniah that grabs the Egyptian spear and slays him with it. You use his words to witness to him. Now, I'm going to introduce you, if you haven't run across it already, two types of evangelism. One is called response evangelism. One is called rote, R-O-T-E, rote evangelism. Now, if you're going to apply rote evangelism, you get a good method. 
and you use that method, if he dares to interrupt you, you say, uh, excuse me a second, um, I'll deal with that later, but right now I'm talking about the Romans Road. That's what's really important. It is what's really important, but more important is what's interesting to him. We witness on the basis of what's interesting to us, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with responsive, with, with, with road evangelism. Nothing whatsoever wrong. Oftentimes I'll give my evangelistic seminars and someone will come after and say, oh, I've been doing it wrong for the last 10 years. And I'll say, there's no wrong way to evangelize. But you can get your way and perhaps make it a little bit more biblical, a little bit more like the Lord Jesus Christ would have done. Now, in every case, Nicodemus, the rich young ruler, the woman at the well, when Jesus tackled someone evangelistically, he spoke to them, they spoke to him, he responded to what they said, they spoke, he responded, and eventually the person was saved. The person was saved by the truth of the Romans' road, but he was saved through the instrumentality of something he was interested in rather than something you're interested in. Let's say you come to a Roman Catholic door. Well, the door of a Roman Catholic house. The door is not to be blamed. But you come, <laughs> you come to the door of a Roman Catholic house and you knock on it and someone comes out and you start to witness to him. And you give him what we call a rote method called the witnessing, or rather called the, called the testimony method of evangelism. And in that, we point them to 1 John 5.13. These things have I written uh, to those who believe in the name of the Son of God, that they may know that they have eternal life. Now, Mr. Murphy, nice Irish name, are you, are you trusting the, uh, are you trusting in Christ? Do you believe on the name of Christ? He says, of course I do. I'm not a, a heathen, a pagan, a Muslim. Oh, I'm a Catholic. I believe on his name. Well, that's great. I'm glad you be here. I believe on his name. But you better go on and find out what he means. Okay, then you respond. Mr. Murphy, if you died three years from tonight, would you go to heaven. Now, we never ask a person, if you were to die tonight, would you go to heaven? Because if you're talking to a Roman Catholic, he will very likely say yes. But we often say, if you died three years from tonight, would you go to heaven? And he will say, Oh, nobody, nobody knows that. I mean, that's the stupidest thing I've heard. How could you know you're going to heaven? Well, the Bible says that they may know. And so he'll say, well, no, I don't know, but I'm pretty sure. Because I know that someday I'll die and I'll go to purgatory. And I'll suffer in purgatory for who knows how long, and then eventually I'll get to heaven. You listen to what he said, uh, plan to die and go to purgatory, and then go to heaven. Purgatory being the place where your sins are cleansed. Now, Mr. Murphy, do you know where purgatory is? 
Well, they've never defined where it is. They, some say it's a place. Some say it's a condition. Some say it's a state. They have no idea where it is. Now, if I saw you at the bus station tomorrow, and I said, hi, how are you today? You said, fine, that Christians usually say. And I said, where are you going? You said, I don't know. I say, that is kind of dumb to go somewhere and not know where you're going. And so for a person to think he's going to purgatory but not know where it is, how's he going to get there? Well, Mr. Murphy, what's going to happen when you get to purgatory? Most every Catholic theologian in the world says there is fire in purgatory. In fact, they say, St. Francis de Sales said that the fire in purgatory is as hot as the fires in hell. I don't know why you want to go there particularly, but that's what they want to go to, because that will cleanse them from their sin. Now, Mr. Murphy, do you know how long you'll be in purgatory? Now, he used to know, because he was wearing a scapular, which is a little round piece of cloth, supposed to have a relic of a saint inside, and you have two shoestrings you wear around your neck. And if you die wearing the scapular, you will go straight to heaven if. And you take that if and put it in neon lights and put it in blazoned red form. It's a must for them if you're dying in a state of grace and if you have not trusted the scapular to save you, but trusted in God. But you're wearing the scapular, so you get to heaven. So you are trusting the scapular. But if you die wearing the scapular, you're still not sure. Now, Mr. Murphy was relying on the scapular. One day he went to the library, the Catholic library, and he got a book. It's called, I can't think of the name at the moment. It's called, forget what it's called because you're not going to get it anyway. I might remember later. It's called something. And in it, it says that there were holy nuns in the earth. They were Carmelite nuns, so they wore their scapular. And they died, and it was revealed to a nun on the earth how long they spent in purgatory. And she was told by God in locution, she was told that these nuns spent 30 to 60 years. Now, the book promised that you would get out every Saturday, the first Saturday in purgatory, called the Sabbatine Privilege. And you're thinking, I hope I die on Friday night because I'll get out of purgatory on Saturday. If you miss it and you have one week, what's one week? Nothing. But here, 30 to 60 years. Wow, I don't know if I can take that. Then you read on. And it says, when you go a little further, it says that the fire in purgatory is worse than one minute in purgatory is worse than 100 years of the worst torture you could, uh, uh, you could have on earth. So one minute in purgatory, worse than 100 years. Now, I'd like one of you to volunteer after the service, and you can come back tonight and tell us exactly how this worked out. I'd like you to go home this morning after the service, and I would like you to turn on your electric stove and turn it on real hot.
And when it gets real hot, I want you to sit on it. Now, I will not ask you to sit for 100 years. Just sit for the rest of the Sunday and come back Sunday night. Tell us what it feels like. We're talking about some pain. I mean, we're talking about a lot of pain. But one minute in purgatory is worse than sitting on your electric stove for 100 years. Mr. Murphy is upset. And he runs out to his priest and he says, Father, I got a problem. I was wearing my scapular and trusting that by wearing my scapular, I'd have maximum one week in purgatory. Now I find out that one minute is worse than 100 years on the earth. What in the world can I do? And so the priest will say, well, I'll give you some things to do. You can buy a holy water font and get holy water for free. One of the few things you get for free in the Catholic Church is holy water. And you can get holy water and bless yourself. Now, if you bless yourself without holy water, that's good. If you just sprinkle yourself with holy water, that's good. But if you take sprinkling yourself with holy water in the sign of the cross, that is the most powerful sacramental, and Satan cannot resist that powerful sacramental. Father, if I buy a holy water font and bless myself with holy water every, every day, I'll be sure of going to heaven? Well, no, not exactly. But I'll give you something else. I'll give you, I'll sell you rather, this beautiful picture of the sacred heart of Jesus. And Jesus gives 15 promises, one of which is assurance of salvation if you have this picture in your home. Father, you mean if I get the holy water font, the holy water, and bless myself, and buy this picture, I'm sure I'm going to heaven? Well, no, not exactly, because you might not be in the state of grace, and so you might not make it. But I'll give you something else. I will teach you how to pray to the shoulder wound of Christ, which is the most neglected wound in Christ's body in bearing the cross they have this shoulder wound. And I'll teach you to pray to the shoulder wound. You mean if I have the font and the holy water and bless myself and have my picture, all, all these things, if I have them all, then I'm really sure of heaven? Well, no, not exactly. But, but I'll give you something else. The priest can give you a hundred or perhaps a thousand things to do. Since they have 2,565 saints, he can give each one of them to you to pray for you. He can tell you what to do. But he cannot tell you the work is done. And that's the difference. Almost, although there are many little differences, that is the ultimate contrast between Roman Catholicism and biblical Christianity. You, born-again child of God, are trusting in a work that was done. Your unsaved Catholic friend that, goes, that you go to on the, wall, on the door, your unsaved Catholic is having his faith in things that he is doing. When you're doing, you're not done. When you're done, you're not doing. You do so you're done. When you're done, you can't do anymore. You can do, 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 do as many do's as you care to conjure up. And yet, a finite do 
plus a finite do, plus a finite do, plus a finite do, does not equal infinity. You cannot get the sum total of do's to equal done. You can in the ordinary physical sense, but as far as the work of Christ being infinite in his work, you cannot get enough do's to get up to where Christ was because he is infinite. And for you to be like Christ, you'd have to be either infinite or at least 10% of infinity. Now, if you're a mathematician, you know that 10% of infinity equals infinity. Infinity plus 5 equals infinity. You can't add to it. It's done. It's complete. It's finalized. And the Catholic Church in its theology does not know and cannot understand the concept of finality. You tell your Catholic friend you're trusting in the work of Christ on Calvary, and he will say, you can't have something so simplistic and base your whole salvation on that. Calling the work of your Savior simplistic. It wasn't. It was heaven's best coming to earth's worst and pouring out his life's blood that you might have everlasting life. And when you go to your Catholic friend and you talk to him and listen when he responds for something he has to do, if he doesn't volunteer it, then ask him, what do you have to do? I was talking to Doug, Roman Catholic in San Jose, California, and I asked him how he's getting to heaven. He said, Bill, it's Jesus, only Jesus. That's how I'm getting to heaven. So we talked for a while, and finally I said, Doug, I said, when you, when you die and you stand before the throne of God, what three reasons will you give God to allow you into heaven? He says, well, I go to Mass every Sunday. I live a good life. I treat my wife well. I don't beat my kids. Do's. Why? He talked about trusting in Jesus only, but did not understand the done in the work of Jesus because he cannot understand done. It's not in their vocabulary. Therefore, you respond to him using the things he said to be the spear that will be used in bringing him to Christ. Benaiah did many wonderful things, including killing the three men that stood in the way of Solomon's throne and eventually becoming becoming the captain of the host under King Solomon. Now, King Solomon's kingdom is a type of the kingdom of Christ, which you and I are heading through our being born again and through our Christian lives. And as we see the uh, finished work of Christ on our behalf, we realize this is the entrance to the kingdom, that we, as we are being trained, can one day be the captain of the host in Jesus' army, the one who is the uh, foremost, or one of the foremost, or one of many of the foremost. Huge crowd, cannot be numbered, stand before the throne, saying blessing and honor and glory and power. Be unto him and unto the Lamb of God forevermore. And you will be in that group praising him. Jesus will say to you, well done, 
thou good and faithful servant. Those are the words that I'm looking forward to hearing more than any other words in the world. Jesus does not go around telling lies. If you have not been a faithful servant, there are penalties. You'll never lose your salvation. That's eternal. But we all must stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and that's why we are living here now. If you didn't have a goal set before you, something to accomplish for him, we used to say, it's due, then done, and then do some more. Which is true because you do do things as a Christian. But God is not as much interested in what you do as he is in how much you die. Die to self. Die to ambition. Die to glory. Die to finances. Die to anything that would be another God. And many Christians have other gods that are holy before them. And we want to stand before his judgment seat and hear those words. I close with a hymn, one verse of a hymn, should encourage us. It says, but if you try and fail in your trying, hands sore and scarred with the work you have begun, take up your cross, run quickly to meet him. He'll understand and say, well done. I like Psalm 103.14, he knoweth our frame, he remembereth that we're dust. And it's good to know we have a God who knows our weaknesses and is ever cheering us on that we might receive all the blessings of heaven through this glorious salvation and then through living our lives daily to glorify him. God bless you. Mm -hmm.